So. Ah, All right, I'll mute you. Here we go, five seconds. Oh, here we go. Oh, oh, I think we just, oh, we got on. That's all right. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another great edition here of Beyond the Cover. I'm one of your co-hosts, John Robb, of course, joined by my ever-so-wonderful, great-looking Jeff Ayers. Jeff, how you doing? Doing great. How's it going? I'm doing good, doing good. And it really is um, a really cool interview we got coming up here with author Adam Hamdi, and he is the author of Free Fall, and we're going to be speaking with him all the way in England, 3.30 in the morning right now in England. So we're talking on Tuesday, he's talking on Wednesday, and we're going to put this thing together and we're going to bring it to you. So it's a very exciting time. I want to remind you all, too, that all of our radio shows are brought to you by Kensington Books. So please make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com uh, for more information. And if you have any uh, questions about any of the radio shows or whatever, you can always email radio at suspensemagazine.com. If you have any questions for any of the guests or you just want to yell at us, um, we read them all. And sometimes we answer them back, and sometimes we don't, just depending on how I feel. But that's just the way it goes. Um, so, anyway, you ready, Jeff? Uh, I am. And I was just saying, I, I'm not going to admit I'm tired because he's got to be tired. he got to be tired. But, you know, yeah. the Premier League is over. I'm not sure who his favorite soccer team was. I'm a Tottenham guy, so I'm happy they're in the Champions League, but we're going to find out. So, anyway, we want to thank Adam so much for coming on. So, Adam... Thank you. How are you doing tonight? I'm very well, thank you. And thank you for having me on Beyond the Cover. Um, I'm really excited to be here. And I'm really excited to be a traveler from the future as well. It is indeed Wednesday here. Um, so I can tell you anything you want to know about predictions uh, for what's going to happen <laughs> over the next few hours where you are. Oh, man, I have <laughs> yeah, a lot it's, of... It's wonderful. I would have a lot of questions for that, but I don't think any of them came true yet. Um, <laughs> but, you know... We we can only hope. But I do want to ask just real quick before we kind of get into the book, are you a soccer fan? Uh, I'm, a, I'm what I would call a, a fair-weather soccer fan, yeah. I mean, if it's uh, if it's nice and sunny, I do like to go to a game. I've just I, We actually just got back from the um, England-Nigeria international game at Wembley um, on oh. Saturday, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, that was really good. Nice. I my kids, um, yeah, for, the, for their first sort of international game. So it was great. It's a really, tremendous experience. And- and like I said, I'm a Tottenham fan, so Harry Kane hopefully will do well in the World Cup because he's one of my favorite players. Um, and that's cool. I like that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. No, he 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 did brilliantly on Saturday. So, um, yeah, we're yeah. Uh, yeah got a lot of hope for him. Yeah, Rooney who? That's what I say. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, so that, 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 gen, that, gen, that generation of players that, you know, they don't even, no one even remembers them anymore now. Exactly. <laughs> So let's get into it here. Um, your first book, and this is, and what you're writing here is a is a three book trilogy. And your first book was Pendulum, and your next book here is called Free Fall. Comes out um, in the states now, July 31st. So for people listening, uh, you can pre-order the book now on Amazon. 
And if you're listening to this, uh, you know, on demand after July 31st, the book's available, but you can go on and pre-order it now on Amazon if you want to. So why don't you go ahead um, and give us a little bit about, you know, what you got going on here um, in free-for-all and kind of take people maybe through Pendulum and, and kind of up to where you're at now. Sounds good, yeah. Well, uh, Freefall is the second book in the series, um, which began with Pendulum. And Pendulum opens uh, with, with two men in a room, and uh, it starts from uh, John Wallace, the main character's perspective, and he's standing on a chair, and he comes around to find himself um, being hauled up with a noose around his neck by a masked killer. He's pulled up onto this chair, and he's told that he's going to die. Um, and by a you know twist of fortune, he manages to escape this killer and flees and has to um, escape and, and try to figure out why this person's targeted him. And what then happens is the story goes from this you know two-person encounter into this sort of labyrinthian world where, um, you know, we're sort of sucked down the rabbit hole. And I, I call it the thin end of the wedge. Something that starts with two people ends up taking us into this world of uh, quite a large and um, profound conspiracy as, as Wallace tries to figure out, you know, why he's been targeted. And Pendulum was, was born of the um, conversations that I was having at the time around 2013, 2014, with lots and lots of people about how the internet was changing their lives. And, um, you know, people like the, the mother who'd found out that her teenage daughter had been the victim of um, revenge porn, um, and her teenage daughter actually hadn't done anything. And um, what had happened was one of the guys at her school had um, got upset that, uh, I think in the end it had been about 15 girls, had refused to go out with him on a date. So he'd taken their photographs from Facebook, um, cut them out and photoshopped them onto um, uh, the bodies of porn actresses and uploaded them to porn sites around the world. Um, and, he, and he wondered why people didn't want to go out with him. Um, uh, and so she'd, she'd, become, the vic- <laughs> she'd want, become the victim of a, of a crime without even realizing it. Um, there were the parents whose, uh, again, teenage son, I don't know if this is like a teenage thing, but um, teenage son had um, befriended somebody. Um, they lived in London, and this person had befriended their son who who, who lived in Chicago. And um, they woke up one day to find that their son had absconded with a couple of thousand um, pounds and uh, and gone to Chicago to meet this person who turned out not to be... <laughs> what they claimed, which was another teenager, and was actually, in fact, a fully grown um, adult uh, male. Um, and, and as I was hearing more and more of these stories, I just thought, you know, the Internet's connected us in ways that previously were impossible, and we can become victims or perpetrators of crime without even realizing it. Um, and so Pendulum sort of follows John Wallace as he's trying to figure out why um, he's been targeted and what happens along the way is that we meet um, a metropolitan police detective called uh, Patrick Bailey and an FBI agent called um, Christy Nash and part of the action in Pendulum is set in the UK um, in London and and in the English countryside and part of it is set 
um, in the U.S., in uh, largely in New York and California. Um, and so we meet these um, two characters who then in free fall go on to become um, principals that get just as much page time as uh, as John Wallace. John Wallace and um, free fall uh, takes the, the sort of conspiracy thread of the story and builds upon it. And we learn about this um, secret uh, organization um, called the Foundation, uh, which has been um, conspiring to uh, reshape the world. And, you know, when I wrote Freefall, I modeled a lot of the um, conspiracy aspects on uh, an organization called uh, Propaganda Due, which is a largely right-wing organization that... Um, Ran the political and economic and religious establishment in Italy um, from 1945 until it was uh, eventually dismantled in the early 1980s. So for 40 years, this secret originally it was a Masonic society, and then it was actually expelled from the, the Freemasons. Um, you know, is it's, it's a well-known case. I'm sure you guys have probably come across it. Of, uh, you know, well-known and, and brilliantly documented um, conspiracy to uh, essentially reshape Italian society. Um, and a lot of high-profile, powerful politicians were, were part of this group. And I just thought it was fascinating that this was going on right underneath people's noses and um, put this front and center um, uh, in, in, in freefall and looked at what people might be doing now if they were trying to... Um, re-engineer society and as we uh, came into um, the u.s presidential election of uh, uh, you know the most recent u.s presidential election um, and, and the sort of aftermath of that it seems that freefall perhaps wasn't as uh, uh, you know far-fetched as I, I i might have thought you know there, there seems to be all sorts of uh, nefarious factions trying to reshape society and they're busy at work all around us um so you know free fall is, is is very much set in this conspiratorial world and it follows john um wallace and patrick bailey and christine ash as they uh, struggle to overcome the, the demons of, of pendulum and, and um you know the consequences of what they've had to face in that book and, and deal with the new threat that comes in free fall Nice. Well, uh, I was going to say conspiracy in U.S. politics. Um, I have no idea what you're talking about. But seriously, um, <laughs> yeah, really. One of the things I liked about Freefall and Pendulum both, and you sort of alluded to this, but I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit. I can't remember a book that so looks in depth into the how they're affected by the chaos going on around them. Usually, the hero doesn't take the time or deal with those things and i'm just wondering can you talk about that yeah sure i mean i um uh, i i kind of like the messiness of life the, the the reality of life and um you know when you talk to uh fbi agents fbi profilers people who've served in the military um uh, you know, people who've been pushed to the extremes of life, they wear it. They wear it on their faces. They wear it in how they behave. It, it changes you. You know, you, you, you're left with an imprint. And um, 
I, I just thought, well, somebody who, who goes through the experiences that John Wallace does and, and Patrick Bailey and Christine Ash in their own ways, they're going to be left um, with the, uh, the trauma uh, of what's happened. And, and a big part of, you know, I know people talk a lot about um, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, you know, and then sort of coping with the consequences of, of that. Um, but, you know, any time something big happens in people's lives, a bereavement, a job loss, um, we all feel it and we all kind of have to cope with the consequences of it. And in, in fiction, I, I just feel that um, I think it's a more satisfying experience for the reader if they can identify with the protagonists in a book. And it felt um, to me a way of humanizing these people. And I kind of very much believe in... Um, trying to make characters as real as possible. And as fantastic as the events are in, in Pendulum and Free Fall, and as much as there's action and adventure and, you know, sort of thrills and spills and, and sometimes, you know, really heightened um, action sequences, I've tried to ground the character and, and, and you know, ground the characters and, and make them live through the consequences of their, their experiences as, as much as possible. Cool. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I'm, I'm always curious, too, is I always love it when, you know, authors decide to kind of do, like, trilogies and kind of, you know, have a set uh, series number that they know that they're going to do, because I love that, you know, because uh, I can always kind of be like, okay, book one is the setup, book two, all the shit happens, book three is where the climax is going to come in and, and everything's going to kind of come together. But why did you think that John Wallace and Christina Ash – were two characters that you felt would be the best to lead your trilogy. What was it about them? Um, that's a really, really good question. So John Wallace, uh, for me, is an every person, an every man. You know, he's um, you or me. He's a fairly sort of regular guy. He's a he's a war photojournalist. So he, ha he does have some experience of combat zones and, and has perhaps been exposed to slightly more um, extreme situations than the average person. But by and large, he's he, he's an everyman. And I, I deliberately chose that because I wanted to, in, in Pendulum, explore this idea that any one of us can get caught up in something now that is far beyond our making because we're connected to the world in ways that we've never been before through the Internet. And we can make a chance remark to somebody that can have a profound impact on their lives. And we can do it anonymous, uh, anonymously online without even realizing it. Um, and, you know, I wanted to explore this using the perspective of somebody who, who was pretty much more or less average. Um, so I felt like it would be a really interesting thing to do then to uh, follow this every man through uh, a series of... Uh, heightened circumstances as he as he as, as his life sort of spirals out of his control and he struggles to cope with what's being thrown at him um and then i put that in in contrast to somebody like christine ash who's a highly trained um special agent with the uh fbi um she's actually had a very unconventional background um she was raised by a father who led a cult in california as it happens um in the um, Pioma Road in uh, in Malibu, actually, um, uh, and um, 
she actually experienced a really devastating trauma when she was uh, a young child. Uh, she um, saw her father murder her mother and um, was, you know, the only witness who gave testimony at his trial, and he was actually acquitted. Um, and that's, you know, that experience has really, as, as it would, has, has shaped her life and sort of set her on the path for, uh, you know, to quest for justice and um, also given her sort of terrible um, trust issues and, you know, makes it difficult for her to form relationships. She's a very um, strong but a very f sort of damaged and, and f fragile character internally. Um, so outwardly she appears this incredibly... Um, robust, successful FBI agent, but inside she's just deeply traumatized by her child ex childhood experiences. And, you know, I felt that she would be somebody really interesting to um, follow through. And actually, as the trilogy pro progresses, she takes on a more and more um, central role. And, uh, you know, a number of people have, have sort of said to me that she's a, a fascinating character. And I just felt that with somebody who's sort of got her background and has come through so much, um, she'd be an absolutely brilliant character to, to carry through um, the trilogy. And then, you know, the third of the, the sort of trio is Patrick Bailey, who's this metropolitan police officer who's basically a good man. He's, he's dedicated, he's diligent, he always tries to do the right thing. Um, and uh, what what's interesting about him is he's he's got a, a childhood friend who's gone on to become a real... Um, kingpin within the London criminal underworld, and it, it, it's fascinating to sort of see how he um, copes with this relationship uh, when he is, you know, effectively a very good, honest um, policeman. But he has this sort of childhood relationship that compromises him. Um, but as the books progress, turns out to be, you know, a very useful relationship to have. And, and I just felt that these three characters were a great way into this sort of conspiratorial world um, and that each of them would bring a very different and interesting perspective to the story. Your characters are amazing, and they do seem realistic, and that's one of the other reasons why I enjoyed them so much so far. And I'm looking forward to the third one, which you said was called Aftershock. Um, that's right, yeah. But one of my concerns after finishing Freefall without getting giving spoilers away, I have to ask, do spoilers, you believe in happy Spoilers. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> do you believe in happy endings? Uh, <laughs> How's that for yeah, a question? That's interesting. That's interesting. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were talking massages. Okay, go ahead. Oh, right. <laughs> so I... I I've been warned that this this conversation should be considered like uh, you know as though we're sitting around the bar at uh, Thriller That's Fest. right. Um, That's right, <laughs> so baby. Drink them up. Clarify, yeah. <laughs> so I do have to clarify that you're uh, you are talking about endings in a in a book, right? Yeah. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So. Uh, well, you know, I, I don't know how, how uh, it's late here. I don't know how smutty, you know, what kind of smut time it is over there. But uh, Dude, it's smut um, time 24-7 on Beyond the Cover. Right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, no, I mean, yeah. sort of, do I believe in, in, in happy endings? Um, oh, that's, that's really interesting. I think that, yes, sort of 
broadly, I think um, it's satisfying as a reader if you, um, you know, see your sort of protagonist succeed at what they're trying to do. I think the process has to be painful um, and and difficult, and they really need to struggle and overcome adversity and and overcome their own sort of uh, lesser selves, if you want, that they're that they're you know inner demons that prevent them from achieving that success um but i'm not a believer in completely happy endings um so the uh you know there are some um shocks and thrills uh, in store in aftershock and um yeah i think i think that whatever you know whether it's a happy ending or not i'm, I'm pretty sure that readers are going to be satisfied it's a very satisfying ending and I'm really excited about um, getting to share it with uh, with readers around the world because it takes the trilogy to a to a whole new level. Um, and uh, yeah, so to answer your question and not answer your question, broadly, um, <laughs> I believe in happy endings. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's a, that's a qualified yes. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, aren't happy endings like in the eye of the beholder? I mean, if you're like a Michael Myers fan, I mean, you want him to win, and then if he doesn't, it's like, well, that wasn't happy. That, that was sad for me. Yeah. You know? yeah. So, to well, me, it's yeah, satisfied, which is what you said. Yeah, yeah. I think it is. Yeah. I, I like I that. Uh, it. Yeah. No matter how it ends, it ends. Sati- it's satis- you know, where you're satisfied of that. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. You, I think there's some books that build you to this massive climax. And then you're like, what just happened? Because I don't even know what just happened there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I, I also I think there's a there's a sort of trend in, in modern writing to have this big denouement and, and, you know, to have everything sort of thrown together and come together and be explained and, um, you know, you know, have massive reveals on top of reveals in the last few pages. And actually... I guess I'm more of a sort of traditionalist. I like to build things and weave things into the plot throughout so that um, instead of a sort of revelatory moment, it's more of a light bulb moment for the for the reader. Sort of things go off in their heads and, uh, you know, they sort of realize that things they've read throughout the book sort of all piece together like a jigsaw puzzle and, and presenting them with that sort of finished picture at the end. So, um, yeah, I, I feel that's a really satisfying way of uh, sort of structuring a book and pulling together things at the ending. Well, can you talk a little bit about the uh, Pendulum TV show? Yeah, well, we've been working on that. Um, I've been working on that with uh, Tom Hardy's production company. Um, oh, would he now? So, would he star in it? Yeah. So the idea was that he. Oh, um, oh, oh, that's a yeah, fucking grand slam yeah. right there. That's a <laughs> yeah, grand yeah, slam no, if he gets in the movie. Yeah, no, it's a. Yeah, no, it's a fantastic. Yeah, so the idea is to do it as a TV show. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, he's he's absolutely fantastic, and I think yeah. he sort of would bring that, to, you know, grittiness. I guess slightly, yeah, grittiness and, and darker quality to to, mm-hmm. to John Wallace. So um, yeah, you know, but it, it's the world of film and TV. So uh, it's uh, life is uncertain, and whatever. The only thing that's certain, I guess, is that things take time. So uh, yeah, we're sort of working on that and pulling it together at the moment. But um, yeah, it's very exciting and. You know, uh, I kind of I write with quite a visual style. Um, I also work as a screenwriter, so I have that style, and it kind of carries into into the book. So, 
as I'm writing my books, I can't help but sort of picture them. And so, uh, in a way, I, I guess I've already seen the the, uh, the 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 film and TV adaptation as I'm as I'm writing the book. But I'm excited to share it with other people. And you know, just to kind of maybe let other people realize, because I think a lot of people. Um, you know, really get on the author sometimes when it's really have, they have really nothing to do with, you know, the choice of characters or even some kind of the direction of how things go. I mean, I know like Lee Child took a bunch of uh, grief for Tom Cruise playing Jack Reacher because they're like, okay, he's five five, he's not six five, he's not two hundred and sixty pounds, he's like one hundred and seventy pounds. But how involved are you in in the TV show and being able to make decisions and being able to see the vision that you just talked about come alive in the way that you did see it? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, you were at um, Thriller Fest last year and you sort of heard, uh, anyone who was there would have heard um, Lee talking about his experiences with the movie adaptation. And, and, you know, he basically looks at it as a, completely separate entity um and and ultimately you know do you want a reacher movie or or you know with with a person who's maybe miscast as a, physically doesn't fit the role or do you not want one at all because that's basically your choice you know you have to have nowadays you have to have a star um to carry the picture in order to get the finance you need so um i don't think i'm trying to struggle you know maybe the mountain from <laughs> game of thrones i'm trying to think of somebody who could actually meet the physical characteristics of uh of reacher um right. and and be an authentic portrayal of the role I, I just don't think there's anyone who's got the box office cachet to to carry off that role so as a fan of reacher um i'd rather see the movie with the wrong physical actor and i you know i you know i i felt like Lee, that I, th- I think Tom Cruise did a fantastic job. You know, he brought a bit of humor to the role, and and he was self-referential as well. They made jokes in the movie about the fact that he was <laughs> shorter than uh, than Reacher and, and wasn't what people expected necessarily physically. I think they handled it well. And as far as my own experiences are concerned, it's actually been really good to um, be involved. I'm, I'm, you know, I've been adapting it myself um, with with the producers and. I said to myself right at the beginning, I have to approach this as a screenwriting assignment, and, and I do adapt other people's novels um, for for screen. I've recently done um, David Mitchell's uh, novel Number Nine Dream, um, which is a book, Booker-nominated novel, very successful um, internationally. And you know, there's a technique to um, novelize, uh, sorry, adapting novels uh, for screen, and um, I, I went down and you know went sort of through that process with myself and sort of took myself out of my author mindset and listened to what the producers had to say and actually made um, what I would say were structural improvements and developments to the story um, that made it fit a, uh, a television series um, better. But in terms of the, the level of control and, and sort of input that I have, it, it, it's probably higher than you know a lot of authors um because i am directly involved and you know tv and film production is a very it's still very much a relationship business so you know you you establish a rapport with with producers and directors and and you have a dialogue about what's going to work creatively um and i've not encountered any of the sort of stereotypical you know hollywood you know 
behavior where you might see a producer throwing their weight around or screaming at you or shouting or anything. Everyone that I've ever dealt with is super professional, um, very, uh, you know, sort of collaborative and, and understanding. And, you know, I, I don't really have a bad thing to say about the process. It's, it's really good. Well, since you dabble in both screenplays and novels, I'm kind of curious, which one do you enjoy writing more? <laughs> I really enjoy books. Um, they, it's such an immersive process. You know, you've got to create the world from the ground up. There's, there's no barrier between you and the reader. So you're trying to uh, um, build emotion, build action, build character, build everything through the words on the page. You're trying to put a picture and a feeling, a smell, a sound, whatever it might be, into the reader's mind, and there's no filter. Um, so it's a much more immersive, much more direct um, art form than film or television. And I love that process of kind of getting lost in a world and getting lost with characters for, for months at a time and getting this, completed work of art that's the other great thing about books you know when you have a publishing deal to put a book out it's going to be in the stores it's going to be read um you know you know a certain number whatever that number is whether it's hundreds thousands or millions are going to pick that book up and um you know you have a definite publication date and and it's out there with film and tv it's it's a collaborative process which i like um, you get to work with other people. It kind of takes me out of my loner author um, uh, reality, uh, and I get to go out and meet and talk with other people. But there's this um, translation element to film and TV where what you put down on a, on, in a script, um, you might have one thing in your mind, but when it comes to a, a director bringing that... Um, uh, you know, bringing that work to life, they have a completely different interpretation. And it's the director that actually is, is the one that's largely responsible for setting the, the, the tone and the look and the, you know, performances and uh, casting it and production designing and, you know, all that sort of thing. So you have less of a, a direct um, uh, relationship with the audience. And also there's the whole nebulous financing and release aspect right. of, um, of film and TV, particularly with film. You know, I've had, have had friends who have, you know, had pictures that have been supposedly financed and they've been on set with cast and crew ready to start rolling on the first day and they, they get a call saying, well, there's no money. You've got to shut down. <laughs> um, uh -huh. You know, it's, it's, it can be quite a, um, a, an uncertain business. And so, you know, novel writing by comparison is, is a, an absolute, um, you know, paragon of stability and certainty um, but yeah to answer your question I, I prefer um, books in general just because of that whole immersive nature and just getting lost in that work cool well I'll tell you Adam um, we want to thank you so much for coming on and talking to us tonight but tell everybody the best place for them to find out and find out more information about you and the books uh, yeah, you can visit my website, which is adamhamdy.com, um, or you can follow me on Twitter. I'm just at Adam Hamdy. Um, but, yeah, my website has all the information on uh, on the books, um, which, you know, all the pendulum's are out now. And uh, as John said, 
uh, Freefall comes out on the 31st of July in the States, and you can pre-order it from Amazon or from any um, good bookstore. And, um, yeah, it's a, it, I, I consider it to be a rip-roaring ride through this um, conspiratorial world, which unfortunately seems very, very real now. Yeah. Very, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, hey, we want to thank you so much for coming. And I know, I mean, 3.30 in the morning, now it's 4 o'clock. So either you're just going to say, screw it and get up and just go, or you're going to say, I'm going to go to bed. Um, but either way, uh, thank you again so much for coming on. And I remember that free fall is July 31st. Pendulum is out now. You can go get the first book, get into the second one. And then Aftershock, is it, do you have an idea of when maybe that's going to come out? Is it going to be another year, six, eight months? Yeah, that's going to come out in hardcover um, next June. Yeah. Okay. In, in the um, States? So in the States, yeah. That will come out okay. in hardcover next next June in the States, yeah. No, it's, uh, okay. yeah. So um, yeah, I'm very excited to, to, to get that out into people's hands. But I just want to say thanks, uh, Jeff and John, for having me on the show. It's been really fun. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm probably, of, of all the choices of what I'm going to do now, I'm probably going to start writing. There you go. You guys have got me fired up. Awesome. Yeah, you got me fired up. There you up, go. So, yeah. You can write about two radio hosts that end up killing yeah. people. I don't know. <laughs> Are you going to be in Thriller Fest real. next month? I am, yeah. No, I'm going to be in Thriller Fest, which should be a lot of fun. Right, we'll actually, we'll uh, definitely catch up yeah. there then. Awesome. Yeah, oh, brilliant. No, I look forward to it. That'll be fantastic. Fantastic. So, yeah, thanks very much for having me on the show, and um, it's been a real pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you so much, man. You have a good one, and good night. <laughs> good night. Thanks a lot. Take care. Uh, all right. Bye-bye. Yeah. So, again, everybody, that is author Adam Hamdy. Visit com for more information on uh, his books. Uh, the trilogy starts with Pendulum, then Free, Fur- then Free Fall, coming up with Aftershock uh, next year. So, uh, definitely an author that you want to put on your list and you want to get on your bookshelf. Jeff, let's take one little quick break here for about a minute and a half, and then we'll just come right back and talk about our topic, which I want to talk about print books and how necessary really are they for an author today um, to get you know fans. So, all right, we'll be back in about... One minute. Have a good one. Hold on.
So thank you, everybody, for coming back here after the break. Great day to talk to Adam Hamdy, Jeff. That was a good catch that you got on that one. Um, want to remind everybody, too, and she's already tweeted about it, but in two weeks, um, author Kate Carlisle, who is the author of the Fixer Up Mystery series, which you can see, of course, on the Hallmark um, Mystery Channel. Um, who is that? Is that uh, that's Jewel is the um, yes. one in that, right? She's going to be on the show on June 19th. Jeff and I are also going to announce something here. I, 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 don't, I didn't tell him I was going to do this, but um, next week, a week ago tomorrow, so June 13th, Jeff and I are going to have an extremely – interesting conversation that we're going to play on the air later but we get to interview jim butcher and that's going to be fun to interview him oh nice looking forward to that i met yeah, him earlier yeah. this year and he's a super nice guy yeah yeah oh you so you have met him uh he was at uh, emerald city comic con when i was there Oh, good, good. So that'll be good. You can be like, hey, Jim, we've met, and this and that. So, yeah, he's going to talk about his latest book, which we just got. Did you review that for the um, AP yet? I have not. Okay. I, they didn't um, send it to me, so shame on them. Oh, okay. Well, we just got it, and um, Shannon said that she just looked through it. I guess it's um, some short stories of different kinds of things. So I don't think it's it's not a book in his series. It's going to be something a little bit different. So that'll be good to can good to kind of see him you know step out um and do a little something else because you know we were just i was just talking to an author of ours today and i'm like you know he's getting frustrated and this and that i'm like hey why don't you just write something else why don't you just write uh, write a freaking mystery write something in a different genre think of something you're so talented you could write the phone book so just think of anything cleanse yourself and I think authors need to do that, and I think fans need to realize that at times, because that's when you end up with a series, and you're like, oh, God, boy, this character's really stale. Well, how do you think the author feels, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, see it all the time. The, you know, he or she's got to keep thinking of a new plot and a new thing and a new thing to put them in, and the back of the book then has to read, this is the most diabolical killer, or this is the most difficult case, or this is, you know, it's got to keep repeating itself. So that's not an easy thing to do at all. Um, it, so Steve Berry always tells me, you've got to do the same but be different. Yeah. I mean, you're writing the same book so people know what they're getting involved in, but then you, you, then you have to kind of differentiate, which is the difficult part. You know, that's the hard part of doing it. Um, but that's why mm-hmm. I like what like Adam's doing because it's three books, you know it, and so – you know it's going to have an ending. It's not going to be something that's ongoing, and he's going to finish it up, nice, tidy package, and you get excited. I get excited about that. That's something that I really like. I do like those. Yeah, I do want to see where it ends up, and uh, the reason I was asking about happy endings, not the happy endings you think about, but uh, just in terms of will it have a payoff that makes it worth my investment in these characters, and it sounds like it does, so I'm excited. Yeah. Um, So I want to get to my topic that I thought about, uh, because I hear this a lot, and I know that you probably hear it a lot, that people kind of sometimes say that you're not like a real author unless you have like a hardcover book or you have a paperback book or, you know, you're not in bookstores. It's like, oh, I don't know. I can't, I don't see you in Barnes and Noble. I'm going to, I just, I want to just kind of tell people and, and Jeff, you know this too. And so you can fill in some of the blanks. Your your chances of getting your book nationally into Barnes and Noble 
in this day and age, you probably have a better chance of being an NBA player. Um, yeah. Because I would agree with you. Yep. Yeah. I mean, you you probably have a better chance of becoming an NBA player because what people don't realize is, first of all, print books are dying. It's you know, it's not a. I won't say it's a dying thing, but it's it's something to where it's kind of going to go away. And I always try to explain to people, you don't need to have a print book to be considered an author. And you don't need to have a print book to make money and have a lot of sales. That's a huge myth, first of all. Um, I don't think the print book is as important anymore. Just like for a rock star or a band, the CD is not important anymore to go on tour. Where before it was CD or, you know, like album, tour, album, tour, album, tour. You don't need to do that anymore. You know, you have a lot of bands don't even put out new music, and then they get together and they just start touring. I mean, when the police came together, they had no new album. They just sang all the stuff that they already had. So Yeah, I, I kept don't hoping think they released some new music, though, but, man, that was a great show. Right, and, but they didn't need yeah. to. So what, yeah. what is your view on the print book thing where – you know, where people don't consider them authors or people are very, very frustrated because it's like when you're an author, when they say, oh, you know, I, I just, you know, I can't buy my book. Why won't Barnes & Noble buy my book? And why don't I make any money off of a book? And, and this and that. I mean, I'm going to tell you right now, those, you know, those books that sell for thirteen ninety nine, you make 40 cents. No lie. When Ingram yeah. buys those books, and puts them out and wherever, or when someone buys them from England, why not? You're making forty cents a book. You're making on a three ninety nine Kindle book about two dollars and fifty cents. Think about um, it as a business thing. Yeah. So I was going to say, if you want to write to make money, then the the physical book is not the way to go for you, and the traditional publishing is not the way to go. If you want to write and just do it for the love of it and actually see it in the Barnes & Noble, if that's your goal, then you want to go the traditional route. But as you said, seeing it in the Barnes & Noble, um, I don't know if uh, most of the listeners know this, all three of you guys out there, but yeah. when you walk into a Barnes & Noble, you see a table with books on it. Yep, here we go. The publishers, The publishers pay for those spots. Massive. So freaking dollars yes they pay a fortune for that the most of the publishers will not do that for you if it's your first or even second novel and you have moderate sales right which is why you always see james patterson stephen king janet ivanovich lee child dean coons you know clive kussler why do you think you see the same 20 books people (laughs) it's because they're paying for those spots now if you go into um your local grocery store and see their bestseller list how are those ranked the answer is those paperbacks same thing the publisher pays for those spots and it just blows my mind that you know oh i'm paying for the number five spot on that list okay mm-hmm. i can't be number one but i can be number five right it's very odd it and, to do with and depending on which store you go to it could be in a different spot but those everything's right. paid I, for I think my Ralphs, Ralphs or Albertsons out here in L.A., I think they do the number one, two, three, four, five, you know, kind of thing. Um, 
not every store not every store does that. Some just throw them up on the shelf and then that's it. I mean, you just you just have them on the shelf. But right, yeah, some do that number one, two, three, four, five kind of number. So I think that the biggest thing is is you know first you know you you don't need a the you know a print book like like you used to because of course that was the only way to get books. And I think if you look at this as a business to make money, then you need – where would you put your money? Well, you're not going to put it in something that's going to give you the lowest amount of return. Okay? You're going to put it in something that's going to give you a higher rate of return. You know, do you want to put it in a stock that's going to make you 2% a year or, you're going to, or one that's going to make you 200% a year? Because, you know, that's, that's where your thing is. You could spend mass amount of dollars and time and effort to call up and get five bookstores to say, yeah, they'll do it. And then they're going to buy two copies, and they're going to sit there, and you're going to sell 10 copies, and you spent 50 hours trying to get that done. If you spend that 50 hours online doing social media, if you do a fan, you get groups, you get things like that, you will sell a hell of a lot more than 20 print books to a bookstore. You just will. Yeah. Um, th- uh, the other thing I was going to mention is that if you, the author, let's let's use me as the example, uh, since I have okay. a book coming out from Tor next year. Right. Um, I'm excited to be traditionally published. It's going to be in the bookstores. It's going to be in libraries. Libraries are a key spot now more than ever for sales of books. But saying that, digitally, they actually have lending systems with digital books. So you can get library sales now with digital books. Mm-hmm. Can you do that yourself? Probably not. But if you are traditionally published, you have that avenue. And we're trying, I'm one of the people advocating for this, that we need to approach the smaller presses. We need to approach um, even the independent you know, self-published things and get those visible as well. Like our company. So it boils down to what we always say, write the best book you can. Yeah, you know, like like our company. I mean, we're small press, but, I mean, you know, we have award-winning books, award-winning authors. Our books have won awards. Uh, Paul Kemper Have you, have you gone the library time. route? Um, again, that's something that is it's very difficult to find the right person at the right time to get it. And so I haven't put a lot of effort into doing it because it is just so much an undertaking to try to find all those things. Um, you know, when you're trying you to do the, the right magazine up, and the we do we'll the show afterwards. and then – huh? Uh, we'll talk afterwards. I can hook you up with uh, the right least place to start. There we go. See? Um, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it's so it's just one of those things where, uh, again, I mean, I'm looking right now and I have – I, I'm looking at my book. You know, I'm looking at our bookshelf because we have a bunch of review books. So I'm looking, and we probably got about 2,000 books sitting on our shelves. And you know, because we get about 10,000 a year, and we send them out. And but the funny thing is, is that I'm sitting here going, if I had to move tomorrow, how much of a pain in the ass is it going to be to move all these books and have to move all this product? And then I look at my smartphone, and I open up my Kindle. And I got about 4,000 books there. And I'm not worried about moving this thing because it's sitting in my hand all day long. (laughs) (laughs) 
What you know, what do you do about I mean, um, signings? You know, and, and that's a good question. That is that that's a very good question about signings. Um, and you know, what's the most important thing about a signing? Is it actually is it getting the author to sign the book? Or is it meeting the author and shaking their hand and asking them questions and talking to them? Because while the signing and you know the signing of, of a book and you take it back and you can do that, the actual meeting and talking and shaking their hands, I believe, is where the story comes from. Because if you you know you're at Thriller Fest and you're walking around and you'll see you know Lee Child and you'll see John Land and you'll see all these fabulous authors and they're just standing there and people can just walk up and they talk to them and then you can have them sign your book and so they sign it. But what are you going to tell people when you get home about meeting Jeffrey Deaver? Are you going to say, oh yeah, he signed my book? Or are you going to say about the whole conversation that you had with him? Yeah, that's true. So let's say that you are at a signing and you're at a Barnes & Noble and you have, you know, let's say rack cards there of your book cover and everything and somebody comes up and does this and that and is talking to you about your book, what if you sign one of those cards and say, here you go, and hand it to them? And then people buy the book, and you can sign the book. So now people that might not have bought your book now have a signed autograph from an author that is sitting in a Barnes & Noble because, you know, a big thing is if you're sitting in a Barnes & Noble and you're selling a book, you're probably pretty well, you know, pretty well known and this and that. So what if you sign these rack cards or, you know, like these postcard things with the book cover on one side and maybe the other books and everything that you've written on the other. And, you know, you kind of sign that for them and you give it to them. And that's something that they can take back with them if it's nostalgia and they have it. And no one ever thinks about stuff like that. Yeah, no, it's true. You know, because there's a lot of times when you walk into a bookstore and you'll see somebody in there, maybe they're peddling their nonfiction book, or maybe they're peddling a YA or something, and it's not really your genre. But I still talk to them if nobody's standing there. I want to hear their story. Yeah, no, you know? you're absolutely right. And uh, when I had my Star Trek book come out, I did a couple events, and the book wasn't out yet, and what did I do? I signed the cards. And it was yeah. a chance to talk to people and uh, give them some hey, you're going to like this when it comes out. So, right. yeah. Or you know, yeah, so go online and get it. I like it. Yeah, you know, and so I don't think it's such a big deal about I would, you know, and I thought that there was technology, and I think, but I think it would be great if Amazon could figure out a way to have an autograph page in every Kindle at the beginning. So you have the book, and then they have one, and then they, when you kind of do it, it's like, when you put your book out there, they kind of insert a page that says autograph page. And so let's say you go and you want to meet Lee Child and you go and you have your Kindle. You can open up that autograph page and have a stylist and he can sign it on that autograph page and then you're done. Because so then when you're reading the book, you have now Lee Child's signature in your Kindle edition forever. Yeah, I just blew something your along mind, those lines would be nice. I just no, blew no, no, your no. mind I, I with that, that idea. idea. I, mean, I know a couple of people who go to Thriller Fest every year, and they actually have the author sign the physical Kindle with a special type of marker, which I always thought was interesting. 
Yeah. But I mean, wouldn't that be cool if they could just it. load up the book and then, you know, the latest, um, you know, the, the latest whatever, you know, the latest Stephen King book, I think it's like Outsider, and you're meeting him, and you open up your Kindle, and you just, because you can hit the table of contents real quick, you click autograph page, and he can sit there on your Kindle with a stylus that, you know, you have, you hand him, and he can say, to Jeff, best wishes, Stephen King, boom, done. And, it, and now you have it forever. It captures that image and it now and so now whenever you do it you can sit there and say yeah and Stephen King signed it it's right here <laughs> I know that um they're trying to create uh, one of those virtual signings where they had Margaret Atwood sitting at her home and then you were in the bookstore and she was connected by Skype and then she would sign something in front of her and then this pen would <laughs> move to her movement <laughs> So you'd have a signed book by her, even though oh, you weren't actually. Uh, uh, again, you I, I know, know what I mean. I, I think for me, I just don't. Uh, that's still not the experience. I would rather shake their no. hand and see them in person. Um, I agree. Than doing that, um, but you know, back, I mean, at least maybe you get to see her and talk to her. Yeah, back to your card idea a minute. What thinking of uh, your publisher? Let's say one of your authors has a book coming out and does a signing. And the book's only available digitally, and you have them sign the card. What if there was a code on a specific unique code on that card, which either gave them a discount on the book or maybe a free other book by that author? Yeah, absolutely. That's something you could, you know, that that's absolutely something that that you could do. You could put that together. Now you might have to have it to where. Now, if you have like a discount code that you're doing it for, that's different. That might not have an expiration. But if you're saying, hey, you know, here's a code to, you know, like a free download or something of the book or of another another one of their books, um, yeah, I'd have to see how that – I guess I'd have to see – you just have to put it in, I guess, to give them like the Comp code so whenever they go to Amazon, they type in that promo code in their book and then they get it. Like you can say, here's a promo code – that works with, you know, whichever book you pick, but it only works once. Um, yeah, I'm sure that, I mean, that's a great idea too, because everybody likes something for free. You know, everybody right. likes free stuff. Um, so, yeah, that would be something they could, that, that, would be, that would be also really cool if they could do, um, to kind of do that. Again, you would probably, see, for something like that on Amazon, I'm, I'm not really sure we've never done that. So I don't know if your book needs to exclusively be on Amazon to be able to discount it, um, because I think if you have like your book on Amazon and then you have it on Barnes Noble and you have it on Apple, I don't think that you could like give one away for free on Amazon but charge the other ones. I think that they might get mad or so. You know what I mean? Or Amazon will be upset by you making right. it free on their site but charging on others. So I don't think they would do that. It's so so you might have to, <laughs> huh? It's so complicated, but you're, you're know, right. You have to make sure you abide by everybody's rules. Um, I have to tell you a story of Thriller Fest a few years ago. Uh, someone had a card for their digital book, and it said, on, the, on this card now, it said, get this while supplies last. Why would they see that, dude? <laughs> I don't know. It's a digital book. Yeah. Are you what do you mean? To... Yeah. How are you, how are you gonna run out? <laughs> but 
we were we were just scratching our heads with that one. I, it's almost like that person just re- tried to reprint something over a card that was already done and didn't realize that that was on there. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I hope somebody like made fun of him. Like, dude, um, you do know it's digital, right? So it's not really ever going <laughs> to run out. <laughs> you know, maybe that was their attempt to pour humor. I don't know. Oh. Yeah, unfortunately, we couldn't ask the person. So true, but you know, I, I mean, to kind of wrap up, I, I'm just saying this is that I think print books, while there's still a market for them, and while there's still millions of people who still like them, absolutely, and I get that. More people, I think, uh, again, like Jeff said, if you want to write for make money, you do it with eBooks. You're not going to do it with print books, and it's just something, and if it's just something that I think is, it's kind of clunky. It's kind of like you know, I always ask people. I'm like, well, when they do, when they talk about the print, I go, oh, I go. So how many DVDs have you bought in the last year? Oh, you just stream Netflix and Hulu, or you buy on iTunes or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Well, how many CDs do you buy in the last year? Oh, you use Apple Music or Spotify or Pandora to listen to your music. Yeah. So then, why the hell are books different? It just took them longer to get to the same point. That's all it's done. Well, and when you think of all the authors that you read that are big names, they didn't make it with their first book. They took no. six, seven books before they even hit the list, let alone became a household name. Right. You know, I mean, it takes some time. I mean, very, very few yeah. authors really make it out of the gate and hit the grand slam with book one. And you know what? Some of them do. And that's the last good book they ever wrote. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, you know, people say, well, what about Dan Brown? Well, the truth is he had three other books prior. Absolutely. And, he did. and, uh, and it wasn't yeah. until he then read the book Holy Blood, Holy Grail and realized, hey, I'm going to steal that book and make the Da Vinci Code. So, I mean, that's, it wasn't until he did that before he finally stole books. <laughs> you know, He sold more Da Vinci Codes on the first day than he'd sold all of his other books combined Oh, probably by ten times. Probably, yeah. And see, okay. So, and so Dan Brown, and so Dan Brown is a good, is a good, is a good subject. You know, Da Vinci, and I think that people would probably say that. But now, wasn't Angels and Demons before Da Vinci Code? Yes. Mm-hmm. And probably, okay. And nobody read so it. So Angels and Demons is funny. I think that's a better book. First of all, oh, I would Da Vinci agree. Code. And then the books after Da Vinci Code, Lost Order, what, Origin, Inferno, not nearly as good as what Angels and Demons and Da Vinci Code were. Not even close to being as good. I mean, Inferno I liked, for me I liked a couple was of them, unreadable. You're right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Inferno for me was unreadable. There was it was it was unreadable, and Origin was about that close to being unreadable. Lost Order, I gave it some, I gave it a little bit better review on it, but because you know it, it did deal a lot more with you know history. It was a lot of the U.S. dealt with the capital, the founding fathers, all that. So it was very interesting. But then when he got into Inferno with Dante, and then when he got into Origin with the whole other thing, dude, I'm out. If you don't go back to more of the historical stuff, I'm done because the, these last two books sucked. 
I, I was kind of uh, an Inferno fan, and so I, I enjoyed that, just for the sake oh. of my history. But um, I was a history major, and I studied Dante, so I got a kick out of it. But for someone who's not with my same background, I could easily see why you couldn't finish it. Yeah, and I love history, but I just thought the I thought that you know the whole you know control the. Uh, kill you know billions to save billions kind of thing. It's like that's kind of been overdone, you know. Kill the population to save the population. I mean, that's, that was just Avengers: Infinity War for crying out loud. You know, I mean, <laughs> which is which was written before people before Inferno. Just so you know, um, but I mean, I thought that was just kind of played out. I thought you know, I don't know. I mean, I was just kind of I was disappointed. I, I thought that it's. Put it this way, this is, Inferno and Origin and his first three books are more what Dan Brown is than Angels and Demons and Da Vinci Code. That's what I'm going to say. That's who I think Interesting. he is. I don't think okay. he's Angels and Demons and Da Vinci Code. I think he's more Digital Fortress or Inferno and Origin and Lost Order or Lost Symbol or whatever that was, something like that. Um. Where, and the funny thing is, there's a reason why that was never made into a movie either. They skipped over that and went to Inferno, just so people know. <laughs> yes. But, yeah, I, I totally think that's the more. But, I mean, so, so that's the thing. You know, it took a while for him to hit. And it, takes, you know, it took Anne Rice two years before Interview with a Vampire, even, anybody even knew what it was. Um, she's talked about that with me on the show, and we've had her interviews talking about Interview with a Vampire. So, I mean, unless you have a major platform, like, I'll just throw, you know, like a Bill O'Reilly, or like Jake Tapper, or somebody like that, where you, can, where you literally have millions of people every day listening to you, and want to hear what you have to say, and, you know, do all of those things, you're not going to come out of the gate and sell books like that. I mean, you're just not. I mean, even somebody as famous as Marsha Clark, you know, she wrote, and then she stopped for a long time, she's written a couple, you know, more since... But she's not on a bestseller list. I don't. She's not number one. I don't think she's even been one through ten, and she's way a household name. And she has a TV series coming in the fall. I yeah, wonder if I that mean, will affect the sales of the books. first forty-eight investigates. Yeah, I mean, and she's doing all this stuff, and she's had it out. Now she has a new one coming out. She's been on live PD, so she's got a major platform, and it's even difficult for her to kind of get into that bestseller list. And she's everywhere. So I mean. The main thing is just authors, you just got to relax. And there's only one thing in this world that you can control with your writing. And you know what that is, Jeff? And what I've said all along. You're writing. Write the best book you can. That's the only thing you can control in the whole world of writing is your writing. You can't control who buys it, where it's sold, who sells it, what they say about it, anything. You can only control your writing. So just focus on your writing, focus on your author platform, focus on some marketing, get yourself out there, do all those things, but never think, oh, I'm not selling, so I'm going to stop writing, because that's not what a musician does, that's not what an artist does, it's not what a creative person does. Creative person keeps going and keeps persevering. So I mean, then when you, know, you do you just have to break out, someone discovers you, you have all this other work that they can dive into. Yeah, and they're like... She wrote, she wrote, or he wrote all of that too. Really? Yep, did all that too. 
So yep. I think that that's a really important thing to just people to just kind of remember. So it's kind of like, you know, this is kind of like a positive thing. Don't think that it has to be, you know, the old 1980s where there was, again, bookstore in every mall. In fact, there was probably two. There was a B. Dalton and a Walden in every single mall. You couldn't go anywhere without a bookstore. And there were books everywhere. I miss those days. <laughs> I know. But you know what's funny, too? You know what Best Buy no longer sells in their stores? CDs. CDs. Walk into your yep. Best Buy. See if, see if you see a CD. You ain't gonna because there ain't any there anymore. They're not. Yep. Why? Because you don't. Going, going to Costco buy to buy a DVD or Blu-ray. I'll tell you right now, every single album that is ranked in the top ten of the most sold albums of all time will never lose their spot. Ever. What you have now, the top, I'll say this, basically the top 20 albums of all time ever sold will never lose their spot. Nothing will ever take them over. Because you're never going to see the 6 million and the 10 million albums being sold or the 25 whatever thriller sold, 30 million albums. That ain't ever coming back, people. Ever. So those records will never be broken. Never. And oh, that's a sad note to end on. <laughs> but it is. Think about it. Think. I mean, yeah. think yeah. about that. What you see right now, the top 20 albums sold of all time, will never probably be cracked because he's just not going to sell that many albums anymore. They're just not. I mean, I, what did Taylor Swift's latest album sell? She's the hottest thing going, right? Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, how much? Did, I mean, I mean, I mean, what was her? I mean, how much was her last album? I mean, how uh, how many did she sell? <clears throat> I know. Well, I have I'm no idea. I'll find out right now for you, live on the freaking air. We'll find out right now, live on the air, how many albums she sold. Let's see what anything went platinum or anything. Reputation, 2017. Um, and it was the best-selling album of time. It sold two million copies worldwide. It sold 1.2 million its first release, and it sold 2 million copies worldwide. That's it. And that was the best-selling one of the year. Okay. That was the top. That was the top album of the year. She so. That's it. They sell. They sell massively early, and then they stop. You know, Adele. Kind of like movies too, but uh, that's another subject. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, Adele sells a million copies, and then they just die. I mean, I think, in fact, I heard from something that they were thinking about lowering the standards so they could get platinum albums out again, because you just don't see them anymore. You just don't see albums that go platinum. Have to lower you know. the standards. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hers was platinum, because you sell a million copies. But you're not going to see six million, you know, six times, ten times, because the top selling albums of all time, I think, is minimum of probably ten to fifteen million copies. That ain't ever coming back, man. Top twenty albums yeah. of all time minimum is probably fifteen million to get that to get that group, and you're just not going to do it. So, and to sell that many books nowadays is even really difficult because there's so many authors you got to compete. I said this. I, I I put it for a picture one time in this, and, we'll, and, and this is how I put it on this. This is what you've got to do as an author. And again, it might be a daunting thing, but think about it in this realm. You're going to put, let's say, there, I think there's like 3 million or how many, how many millions of Kindle books there are out right there. 
but there's probably about 200,000 authors, right? Let's just say there's 200,000 authors on Amazon that are selling their books, right? Fair, fair, fair assessment? Mm-hmm. Probably more than that, but we'll say 200,000. So that's two Rose Bowls. So think of, so think of the Rose Bowl. So it's 100,000 people, big stadium. That's two of them. So every author gets into the stands. Now consumers are walking in onto the field, and they're going to buy books. And you're in the stands. How are those people on the field going to see you? How are you going to get those people on the field to see you out of the other 100,000 people that you're standing with? Yeah, good point. That's where you're at. So the first thing is write the damn best book you can, keep writing and never stop, and keep working on it. Because eventually you're going to be seen by those people in the field because you're going to outwork everybody else in the stands. And that's the whole idea is to keep doing it and, you know, treat it like a business and you'll do fine. If you just treat it like a hobby, then you're going to be sloppy. And that actually freaking rhymes. Treat it like a (laughs) hobby, going to be sloppy. (laughs) That's funny. So, all right. Hey man, man, we've run over the time. Holy shit. We've gone a long time. Um, so, Jeff, two weeks from tonight, Kate Carlisle is going to be on, so that's going to be fun. And then a week after that, we're going to have Alan Jacobson, and we'll probably, I'm not sure when we'll play the Jim Butcher interview, depending on when they want it to be released. It could be with Alan on the 26th. We might talk to Alan first and then play Jim Butcher on, on that show. We'll have to see when we're allowed to do it, but that's going to be cool. All right, well, looking forward to those. And then uh, we're taking July off for Thriller Fest and stuff. For Thriller, yeah, Thriller Fest and everything else. And then we'll be back in, yeah. in August. So, yeah, we'll take that time off. I always cut the show in July, just a little summer out, people, this and that. So, you know, authors take vacations and stuff like that. A lot of the summer reads have already come out. So July is always a good month to take off and then come back in August, finish out the year. Sounds good. Yeah, so. All right, everybody. So until next time, two weeks, Kate Carlisle, um, and we will see you all then. Have a good one. Keep reading. Have a good one. Keep writing. See you next time. Good night.